Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Today we're talking to Jacoby Williams, Associate Professor of History at Indiana University. Professor Williams' research focuses on resistance and social justice movements originating with and involving the African-American community. His most recent book, From the Bullet to the Ballot, the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party and racial coalition politics in Chicago shed new light on a tradition of community activism extending from the 1960s to the present day. As a fellow at the center this year, he's working on a new project examining how the Black Panther Party's model of organizing and advocacy found itself mirrored among groups, not only in the United States, but in countries around the world. Welcome, Jacoby. Thanks for having me. So, Tell us a bit about why you got interested in this study. What brought you to this study? I started off as a 19th century historian at UCLA as a graduate student. David Hilliard was shopping the Black Panther Party archive, the Hugh P. Newton papers, which Stanford ended up buying. I spent that summer digging through those archives, trying to figure out if it was the quote-unquote definitive collection. And in doing so, I discovered there was a lot of material on mostly the West Coast and some and a bit on New York, but very little on Chicago. And so then I was writing on Nat Turner. I decided, been over at that time, about over 130 years of material and scholarship talking about that particular revolt and very little on Chicago and the Black Panther Party. And growing up in Chicago, the two martyrs of the movement that were instilled in us as children were first Emmett Till and second Fred Hampton, and there was very little scholarship or material published at that time on Fred Hampton. And so I set out to uh, initially write his biography, which evolved into the two studies that I'm working on now. And your methodology for this project, you're doing oral histories, you're doing interviews. What kinds of sort of unusual takes are you taking to uncover the material that you need? Well, that's the thing. Um, Doing history about people who are still alive is a bit complicated. So I do rely on a lot of traditional sources, um, FBI records. I'm also using um, some circuit court sealed Chicago police records. But also um, the oral histories are are important uh, for a number of reasons. Um, Well, at least for Illinois, a lot of those people are hesitant in giving interviews and talking about um, their experiences, members of the Illinois chapter of the party, which explains why there haven't been many books published on that chapter. There have been a lot of books published on the other chapters, 49 chapters of this organization, but very few uh, materials published on Illinois. And so gaining their trust has been a challenge in a number of ways it still is, which is why I'm pivoting in a different direction with my second project, just because, to be quite honest, it's too complicated <laughs> dealing with members of the Black Panther Party in a number, for a number of reasons. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, it's an organization that has a lot of tension because of the way in which the legal apparatus of the state, i.e. COINTELPRO, or in Chicago, the Red Squad and the Daily Machine, um, repressed, suppressed, assassinated members like Fred Hampton and others. So it's a lot of what I call um, post-traumatic stress syndrome that folks are dealing with. And for those reasons, understandably, they have a hard time trusting people. And initially, to get their uh, members in Chicago to get their support, many of them thought I was an FBI agent because I was just too young to know as much information about them as possible that, that I had. And so getting the, gaining their trust was, was a challenge. And finding out um, that there are still cadres and quote-unquote cliques within the organization. So if I get too close to one particular group of people, then that 
kind of turns off or, or I can get ostracized by a different group, a set of folks. And so it's complicated trying to do history about people still alive. And more importantly, uh, many of them think that I may get rich off of their stories. And they suffer through these traumatic experiences and they want to tell their own stories. Um, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the organization. Many of them have yet to still tell these stories. And so some of them become hindrances in, in the process in terms of what I'm trying to do. But at the same time, I respect and understand that. And so I want to give them an opportunity to do so. So I want to pivot in a different way so I don't burn those bridges because they're necessary and, need, and, and I need them uh, for the, my future studies. So you got into the Chicago Police Department's Red Squad files. Could you talk a little bit about what they are and what you found? Well, that's the thing. The Chicago Police Department Red Squad files are restricted, so I can't even really have a conversation with you about what's in them. I can tell you how they became restricted. There were a group of citizens called the Alliance to End Repression, and they together sued the city of Chicago, led by a number of groups, led by the ACLU and other other particular organizations. And what they discovered is the Daily Administration was using Chicago police secret force called the Red Squad, which came out of HUAC, House on American Activities Committee. Um, so every city had one, except Daily used it as um, the same way that Jacob Hoover used COINTELPRO. So anyone who had any dissent against this administration he leased this Red Squad file against these groups to discredit them. Some people were arrested falsely, and it violated all kind of constitutional civil rights. And so many people sued, and because the city was hemorrhaging hundreds of millions of dollars, the Seventh Circuit decided to seal the records to prevent further lawsuits. And so I have unlimited and unprecedented access to these records, but I can't legally disclose to you or, or others what's actually in those records. I can tell you that what I do know what's in those files are some materials, many materials that police can only have gathered by using illegal means to acquire them, meaning breaking in people's homes, wiretaps, and a whole host of other materials. So um, those records, I can tell you who lived where, who was dating whom, their addresses, how much money they paid on their bills, the particular companies who cooperated with the police and so forth, and who maybe some of the informants were who infiltrated the party. Were there informants from the federal level all the way down to the local level? Um, in doing so, they took very, very detailed records. Not all the material is 100% accurate, which is why the oral histories are important as well. So what kind of stereotypes are being challenged by your study? Well, the huge stereotype, even today, is that the Black Panther Party is the black version of the Ku Klux Klan, and that they hate white people and they are a terrorist organization. All those are untruths. Um, the Black Panther Party is a black power organization, but it doesn't fit the traditional black nationalist model, meaning they are not an anti-white organization. They were a, a socialist organization, an anti-capitalist organization is the best description to describe them, who use socialism as a way of bringing poor and disparate people together to form coalitions to fight against the capitalist structure. And in doing so, they work with all kinds of groups, regardless of their particular backgrounds, um, especially poor people. And so they don't hate white people. They, they, they actually organize with, with folks from all walks of life. And two, um, they were not about simply just trying to overthrow the United States government. They actually just wanted to eliminate the economic system, which is capitalism. They believed that capitalism was a dividing factor in not only the United States, but especially in its imperialistic tendencies and foreign policies that tended to prevent the United States from living up to its ideals as a democracy. 
How about stereotypes regarding women in the party? I mean, there's been a perception that this is a very male-centered, male-led organization. Uh, anything that violates those stereotypical notions? Yeah, so that's a huge misconception. Um, so, yes, there were women in the party. Uh, what makes the plaque to the party so unique in this period, um, particularly it began in 1966, lasted to about 1982. So we're speaking about um, the 1960s and 70s. They were the only civil rights or black power group to put gender on the front burner along with race and class, even LGBTQ issues. Um, so this idea of advocating for equality for all, they were the only group doing that. And I see the only group, not SCLC, definitely not the Nation of Islam, not the NAACP were fighting for gender equality in the way in which the Panthers were. And so almost, I say by its height, over 60% of their membership were women. Uh, what makes the Illinois chapter so unique is which I, I focus on most of my research on Chicago is because there are 49 chapters of the party, but most of the understanding that we have about the party centers on its national headquarters in Oakland since the overshadow of the 49 chapters. And so to really get a understanding that what's true of the macrocosm is not true of the microcosm, if we look at these chapters on the local level, we discover that in places like Chicago, for instance, uh, women are in numerous leadership positions um, and decision makers, unlike what was taking place in the national branch um, in Oakland until folks like Kathleen Cleaver and later Elaine Brown became um, heads of the organization. Chicago, from its inception, always had that gender balance and that gender dynamic, not because they were the men were somehow privy to um, this utopian idea, it's because the women demanded so and respected as such. So I want to make sure the agency of those women are highlighted there. Your study also takes us beyond the United States and looks at the influence of the Black Panther movement uh, in countries as diverse as the UK, New Zealand, and India. Most people think of the Black Panther Party as being very uh, United States-focused. How do you see those influences manifested in other countries, and is there a consistent pattern? What are some of the nuances? Well, that's a, a really large question I'm trying to unpack. So the Panthers pretty much set the example that poor people, irregardless of color, can work together and create a support network for one another. I mean, in doing so, that influence, building these coalitions here in the states and others, influence people beyond. And so um, I look at particularly places where the Panthers did not go. So you have these Panther chapters set up in Africa, um, in the Caribbean, and so forth. So I'm interested in folks where these Panther-type or influence organizations sprout, where the Panthers actually didn't go there to quite, quote-unquote, plant flags. And so, for example, in 67, in Great Britain, you get this coalition of people. It tends to be mostly from the Caribbean and parts of Africa, but people also coming from India and the Philippines and Turkey. And it's pretty much the British colonial subjects coming together and creating this coalition of folks. And then they call themselves the Black Panther Party. I mean, the same thing takes place in um, New Zealand where you have the Maori, who are the indigenous folks to the island, but then you get this coalition of these various people from the various parts of the South Pacific, these Polynesian folks, and together they call themselves the Polynesian Panthers. Uh, and the same thing happens in India, but there it's different because it's a caste system about 1972 when they are established, and um, their issue is um, trying to overthrow what they see as oppression of the caste system, and they see the Panthers as a model. Um, they argue that the 
the kind of conditions that African Americans are facing in the um, United States is being at the bottom of the so-called social hierarchy. They see themselves as Dalits, also in a similar position in this caste hierarchy. And so they model the Panthers as a way of creating a methodology of grassroots organizing and mobilizations and coalition politics to try to overthrow those conditions. Now, in all these various locations, they model, they emulate the Panthers in all these various ways. They emulate the social service programs. Many of them are social organizations. But then there are some problems. For instance, the gender dynamics in India are egregious, which aren't consistent with what's taking place in the states, for example. So they're not all the same. India is not only different in that regard. India is the only organization who's still alive. So the original Black Panther Party died out in 82 in the states. And I say Polynesians lasted to maybe 81, 82, and the Great Britain only lasted five years. But the Dalit Panther Party is still alive and well today, except now they're neoconservatives. And so even their political trajectory has changed. And so there's also all these evolutions and nuances that are play that I'm, as a U.S. historian, trying to unpack doing all this transnational history that I'm not really trained in. Um, and so it's, it's going to take some time. I recall when President Obama, in, in the initial campaign in 2008, when he was running for president, there was a lot of aspersion cast at him as a community organizer. Will this study help to rehabilitate community organizers by looking more into the history of community organization and its vast reach into uh, enacting positive change? I, I really hope so. Um, what I tried to do with the previous book is highlight those nuances, those connections. So in from the bullet to the ballot in that book, what I'm indirectly arguing is that it's not by accident that the first black president comes out of Chicago using racial coalition politics. It's not a new phenomenon. So you have the establishment of the original Rainbow Coalition led by the Panthers, and, and then the first group to join forces with them are these Confederate flag wearing southern white migrants from various parts of Appalachia and so forth. Then the next group are Puerto Ricans and, and a whole host of these groups, and together they call themselves the original Rainbow Coalition. Then they began to, after Fred Hampton assassinate, run people for office. They win certain campaigns, certain measures. Even people like Hill Washington join forces with them, and as a Democrat, he runs on this Rainbow Coalition ticket. He becomes the first black mayor of Chicago, and when he's elected, he creates what he calls his Rainbow Cabinet, and he brings all these people who are members of these, these organizations, the Panthers or the Young Patriots, Young Lords, and so forth, and puts them in his administration, in his cabinet. Um, and then Jesse Jackson appropriates the title after the success. Um, and so when we say Rainbow Coalition today, we think of Jesse Jackson, who had no connection to this organization from its inception because they were a socialist organization, and Jesse Jackson's always been a capitalist. Um, so that was a huge um, contradiction there. At the same time, these things are taking place. Barack Obama moved to Chicago to become a community organizer. Well, Chicago's so territorial that outsiders just can't come in and plant their flag. So he and a whole host of people were able to learn these kinds of trajectories. And those kind of grassroots organizing is what influenced all these other groups to join forces with them. And so when I, I mention the Young Patriots, I mention Young Lords domestically, they're emulating the Panthers because of their grassroots organizing and the social service programs, community service programs they create. And you look in the broad, where's the disparate poor way out in the South Pacific or Southeast Asia or even in Europe? They're emulating the Panthers for the same reasons. It's a way of self-empowerment at the local level by using community organizing, grassroots organizing, and creating programs and social services that empower people to create changes. And so 
in our community. So when I say the Panthers set the example, it's, it's not an aberration. It's an understatement. They set the example for how poor people can empower themselves to overthrow their oppressors without actually arming themselves. Now, the Panthers themselves use armed self-defense, but not all these other groups around the country or even around the world use that method. And even the Panthers themselves didn't highlight that as a, as a measure uh, by 1971. Well, thank you, Jacoby Williams, for sharing this far-reaching and fascinating project with us. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.